Welcome to Research Bytes podcast, where we talk to researchers about their journeys through academia. Today, I'm joined by co-host Lachlan Gray. How are you, Lachlan? I'm doing very well. We are missing Felix. Felix, we miss you. <laughs> we hope you're back next time. And our guest today is Kira Batten. Kira is a registered dietitian who has been practicing for over 10 years. And she's now a part-time PhD student researching inborn errors of metabolism. Hi, Kira. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me today. You're welcome. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to start off by getting to know you and your journey to where you are now a little bit more. So where did your journey through academia start? Yeah, great question. So as you said, I've been doing clinical dietetics. So that means working in a hospital as a dietitian for over 10 years and a mix of adults and pediatrics, regional uh, hospitals, but also tertiary referral teaching hospitals in the city. Uh, I started out at Westmead Children's Hospital uh, about five and a half years ago or so. In the first two weeks, the head of the department at the time who had interviewed me for the position walked into my office, sat down on a chair and said, have you ever considered doing a PhD? <laughs> and I said, I've got no idea what, what I'm doing with your patients first. Can I work that out? And then we can talk about the future. <laughs> so he'd sort of planted the idea at that time. Um, and I really enjoy the clinical space. But after you know the five years that I've done in that particular clinical area, you've obviously developed some knowledge and skills and that exponential rate of learning has sort of tapered off a little bit. And I was looking for, I guess, the next opportunity, next challenge. To cut a long story short, we had some opportunities at the hospital to be engaged in a philanthropic pitch program. So where a bunch of different research groups across the hospital networks pitched to philanthropists to see if they could get their research projects off the ground. And my particular research project was something that my hospital doctor, clinician, had thought about for quite some years, and he just didn't have the resources, the time, or the funding to do it. So our team worked quite hard and were quite lucky to be matched with a philanthropist that would fund a research project. And given that I was the clinician at the time, it worked for all of our resourcing, I had the opportunity to turn that dream of his in terms of the initial thought about what we would do into a PhD reality. So I got started in enrolment about 18 months ago um, and started here two days a week at UNSW and then I still do my hospital job three days a week. Hmm. Cool story. No, no luck though, in my opinion. Everything <laughs> happens for, for good reason. Before your dietetics journey though, go back a step and what did you do before that? Because that's not where you started, right? So I did a double degree in exercise sports science as well as nutrition dietetics. Um, I'd also done a little bit of personal training through university um, and I've always been quite active in sport uh, as well. So I think that has always shaped me enjoying the mix of physiology but also nutrition and the kids that we see in the hospital their physiology is so tightly tied to nutrition because it's an inborn error of metabolism. So for me, having this sort of research project and a background in that sports and exercise science as well means that I could team both of those knowledge uh, interest areas into one sort of greater research project. Yeah, it's really interesting the connection that you have between 
the exercise and the diet, which obviously now I'm saying out loud makes a lot of sense, but <laughs> I guess I would never have thought about that. One way to, I guess, treat these patients is, um, yeah, looking at how their exercise is affected by their genetic uh, condition and what uh, different foods and things could improve that. I, that's a really fantastic connection. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I love about it because in so many parts of clinical dietetics, your input is, I guess, complementary to, say, standard medicine. So, you know, pharmaceuticals and medical operations and treatment, radiation, all those sorts of things. But in the area that I work in, in the inborn areas of metabolism, sometimes diet is the only therapy. So our contribution is quite rewarding in that way. And children can grow better by doing that, but also live an optimal life. Some of our kids will die in the first few weeks of life if we don't pick them up and treat them aggressively enough. Some of them will live uh, a reasonably normal life, but may have some impediments physically or cognitively. So our import is quite crucial in that regard. And we work, do work very closely with the doctors and the scientists and sort of the greater multidisciplinary team. So you're right, it's quite an integrated mix. Um, and if we didn't think about, well, we're not just giving the diet for the therapy, but how does that then actually affect them day to day? How do they get around walking at school? How do they do PE and sport? How do they walk to the bus? How do they, you know, when they're a bit older, go and do activities with their friends? And that's an area that hasn't really been touched on at all in children in these cohorts. So there is quite a big gap for research. There's just, because it's such a rare area of medicine, there's very limited funding and there's also very limited numbers, which really, um, I guess, is probably been the impediment thus far. So tell us a little bit about inborn errors of metabolism. Mm. What what are they and how do you identify them, especially so early, given that, you know, for example, that two-week timeline you've, mm. met, you've mentioned? Yeah, great question. So an inborn error of metabolism is basically any uh, enzyme defect that is gen generally genetically inherited from both parents, if we're just talking um, a male and a female uh, designed embryo, um, and that enzyme defect leads to a deficiency in a metabolic pathway. So it means that there's a block in the metabolism of a nutrient. So if we think about nutrients, you generally break them down into carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And all of those at some stage in the body are converted by lots of different enzyme reactions to produce energy or ATP. And that energy or ATP then is used by the cell to then do whatever the cell needs to do to work. So that might make the heart pump. It might make muscles move for movement. It might make organs um, utilize, you know, air or oxygen or, or so forth. So what happens when there's a block in that pathway is it can do multiple things, but essentially it means that there is a buildup of potentially toxic things upstream of the block. And then it also means there might be a deficiency downstream of the block. So typically with a lot of these conditions, the downstream deficiency is actually a deficiency of energy. So if we think about muscle movements, there's a deficiency of the ability for muscles to move. And therefore, that's where we affect physical activity. So a lot of these conditions are diagnosed in the first few weeks of life. So pretty much every single child in Australia and most developed countries have what's called a newborn screening program. So every child at about the age day three of life get a little bit of blood taken from their heel. It's a heel prick, goes on a little card, and that card gets sent to our laboratory at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. And we cater for every single 
child and dried blood spot in New South Wales. So there's only very limited labs in wow. Australia That's that does a this. a lot of testing. It's a lot of testing. It's a lot of patients. We're the main centre wow. that caters for this sort of rare cohort. And so what that lab does, it then tests the blood for different what we call metabolites. And if they see that there are certain metabolites that are elevated, they'll let the doctors know and the doctors will then call the family and say, come in, we need to have a chat, we need to do a little bit more testing, we just need to investigate what this result means. And so then we potentially make a diagnosis from there. There are limitations with that though. By the time the dried blood spot is taken, delivered to the lab and processed, it might take about 10 days. So child is already about 10 days to two weeks old. Mm. And by that stage, the child is already consuming breast milk or infant formula, which all contain nutrients, protein, Mm. carbohydrates, fat. So they may already be suffering from some of the repercussions in some of the more really serious conditions, which is why they may actually present unwell to the hospital before we get a newborn uh, result. And that's where it can be really tricky to manage and we may not have optimal outcomes. In some other children, uh, we can't actually test those conditions in the first sort of newborn stage and they may present a lot later in life. So it may be in toddlerhood when they get uh, an intercurrent illness like a viral infection or gastro and they present unwell with feeding or um, poor growth or it may even be later in um, childhood, adolescence, teenagers, even adulthood, some of our conditions that are mistaken uh, and misdiagnosed and missed um, and there's one that I'll talk to you a little bit more about, which is the focus of, of one of my PhD projects. Um, and part of that, again, is because of the rare nature of these conditions. As a dietitian, uh, we see roughly about 50 to 60 different conditions and about five to 600 children in New South Wales with these different conditions. Mm. So we may only have in Australia one child with one different condition. Most of our children have never, ever met anyone like them. Yeah, wow. That's a really... You've, I feel like you've done that numerous times, that explanation. That was very well said. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm very I'm curious. So is this the the, the Guthrie test or, or something? Very is good. That, yeah, is that the Guthrie card. Yeah, Guthrie yep. card, sorry. Yep. Um, like from my understanding, the actual testing of the like um, the, the like genetic effects is at quite a basic level compared to the technologies that we actually have available. In the rarer cases, are you are these children going through you know, like whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing? Is that like a like a, a step when the diagnosis becomes more challenging? Or? Yeah, yeah, very good point. So the Guthrie test is only an initial test and you can then do some additional blood tests off that which might give a biochemical diagnosis but we can't confirm con- uh, diagnosis until you've done genetic testing mm. and that may involve some of the technologies you've just mentioned like exome sequencing and genome sequencing not my area of expertise mm. so that's that's probably all I really know about it um, but some of those tests can c- take quite some time yeah. um, and whilst we treat clinically uh, and genetic testing can give us some information there can still be some gaps. So you may get some genetic information that says, okay, well, in this particular child, we've found a known pathogenic variant. So that means that one of the genes that they have is known to cause a disease. But then we may have a gene that's called a VU, which is a variant of unknown significance. Mm. Mm. And we don't know what that means. We don't know what it does. However, the child is presenting clinically like they 
all of the features of this particular condition. So therefore we need to treat them as they have that condition. So it can become a little bit challenging at times with that because there's not always clear black and white definitions. But luckily that's not my role. That's the doctors. <laughs> they just tell me that we're treating this like this and we then help to make that realistic and practical for the family. And what does the treatment look like from a dietitian's perspective? Mm, yeah, really great question. So our children basically need really severe dietary modification. So if we break it down, as I said, you've got enzyme deficiencies in protein, fat, carbohydrates, but you may have a crossover in some of those pathways. Mm. So the protein-based conditions, they need a really restricted protein diet. And for our what we call classical conditions, so they're the ones that are most severe and they have no functioning enzyme, they may only be allowed four to eight grams of protein a day. So what does that mean wow. realistically? That's no meat, no animal products whatsoever. No dairy. No dairy, yep. No nuts, no seeds, no legumes. Um, they can't even have normal bread, rice, pasta. They actually need to source specialized low-protein versions of those. And then most of their diet is made up of fruits, vegetables, and very specialized supplements that replace all of the nutrients that they're not getting through food. Hmm. There are differences in phenotype, and when I say phenotype, that means they may have the same genetic change as someone else, but they may be a milder phenotype, which means that they may have some residual enzyme activity and that they can uh, digest or metabolize a little bit more of that nutrient than their classical peers. So they may be allowed, if they're a bit milder phenotype, maybe 20 to 25 grams of protein. And that actually can make a quite a significant difference for these kids realistically. It means that they don't have to have those specialized protein uh, pastas and rices. They can go out to a pizza place and get gluten-free pizza. Mm. You know, they can go to their friends' houses and have normal bread. Um, that's actually a huge difference because if you think about trying to go on a holiday and you've got to bring packets of pasta and rice and bread or flour to make bread because there's actually no ready-made bread products available, it's really challenging. You mm. know, when you've got kids going to birthday parties, they can't eat the same foods as all of their friends and their siblings and it is really, really difficult. And it would sort of contribute to that that feeling of like otherness as well as that you, as mm -hmm. you were just saying, they because of, of this their condition, they, they can't exercise and they can't play sport with their friends, but then they can't eat the same food as their friends. That would feel very, uh, yeah, very tough, very challenging for, for a small child. You know? Yeah, definitely. And if you think about as a whole society, so much of our connection and cultural um, celebrations are focused around food and focused around activity. So you take that away from these kids and these families and it's really, really challenging. So... We have to try to make realistic but practical changes in their diet and find a happy medium between what's really important for the family and what's feasible for them, but also what's going to optimize their health and not reduce their quality of life, but also reduce their long-term health outcomes, mm. some of which we don't know yet because we only have so many years of survival rates. Yeah. So with the other, I guess going back to your question about what it actually looks like that's just the protein ones mm. you know there are similar aspects across all of the conditions some of them are will sound fairly straightforward so some of the metabolism defects that you can't process fat they need a very very fat restricted diet which sounds easy enough okay you cut out salmon avocado nuts seeds you choose skim dairy you don't cook with oil But that means no hard cheese because there are actually no cheeses on the market that are less than three grams of fat per 100 grams of food. So you have a couple of choices of soft cheeses. You can't use any oil in cooking. 
you might have to use an air fryer. Thank goodness that they've been invented. <laughs> um, and it's again, it's really hard. There's no there's no takeaway. There's no fried foods. There's no hot chips. Um, and again, we're thinking about those celebratory mm. occasions for kids. Mm. That's really yeah. challenging. Yeah, I think not just celebratory day to day life mm. and. You know, everyone who's listening in at the moment now will understand the challenges we face as adults of being able to eat healthy. What is healthy? What's not healthy? Mm. So now you've got to deal with that in a much more, you know, detailed and higher value environment in little people. (laughs) So I'm really interested in some of the... Um, you know, the behavior change work mm. that you guys do, do you work closely with psychologists or does part of your training require that you, you study that quite a bit or is that something you'd really develop as you go? That's a great question. Unfortunately, given we work in a public health system, we don't actually have the funding for a psychologist yeah. in our service, which is a huge gap. And you're 100% correct. You know, half of what I do is the metabolic dietetic stuff but the other half is really behavior change and thinking about especially those toddler years if you asked every parent of a toddler if their child is fussy they would tell you yes 100 percent every time but put the stress of having dietary restrictions and only being allowed certain amounts of food but also having to meet targets of food and restrict fasting so when i say restrict fasting a lot of our kids who are of the more severe phenotypes, they aren't allowed to go for more than a certain number of hours without food or fuel because what will happen is that their bone body stores will start to break down and then that will get them into real trouble mm. because they can't metabolize, say, fat or protein. So that requires some of our parents and families waking up multiple times overnight to feed their child. The child's not going to be hungry at that point. Or worried about sleeping through because they're too tired to wake their child up. Or having to almost force feed your child when they're not hungry because you need to not overshoot on those fasting times. So, yeah, you're right. Behavior therapy. um, And and I guess you can take that in two cohorts. You can do the behavior therapy of, well, we talk about for the child and the parent relationship or the, the caregiver or guardian, we talk about something called division of responsibility. So if you think about mealtimes, the parent or caregiver's responsibility is to provide the what, so the variety of foods, and that may be limited within their metabolic condition, the when, so structured meal and snack times, and the where, so at the kitchen table, ideally with other members of the family to role model off. Mm. The child's responsibility is, first of all, if they want to eat, if they're even hungry enough, and second of all, how much. But a lot of it, it sounds very simple, very simple, but it's not. Mm. Because a lot of parents, not just in metabolic field, but in general pediatrics, get very, very stressed that their child's not eating enough or they're not growing well enough. And then you overshoot on their appetite, satiety, regulation. And then we lose that natural, um, uh, I guess, effect of, am I hungry? Am I full? Right, yes. You know, as adults, we've got so many other things that (laughs) impact. Are we stressed today? I'm emotional. I want some chocolate or some ice cream. <laughs> am I am I actually hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I tired? You know, is it a social occasion? Is it something to celebrate? So we all eat for lots of different reasons. Young children only eat when they're hungry. It's a learned behavior to eat for other reasons. Mm. But to try and describe that to a family but also consider, well, you have to feed your child every four hours, it's a really fine balance to meet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
So would you mind uh, going to more detail about your PhD project? Yeah. Explain what, what's your focus. Yeah, sure. So I'm looking at two sub-cohorts of this inborn errors of metabolism. So one is the long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorder. So I touched on this. These are kids that can't process or metabolize long-chain fats, which is all the fat that we eat in food. The second group that I'm looking at is called glycogen storage disease type 5. So the other name for it is myocardial disease. It's probably what it's more commonly known for. The common factor that both of these conditions have is that they can't process nutrients and it means it's specifically relevant to their muscles and they can't produce energy in the same way that we normally would to produce movement. And what happens when they don't get enough energy from their muscles is that the muscles then break down. And the technical term for that is called rhabdomyolysis. So you get strong muscle breakdown, significant muscle breakdown, which can manifest as black urine because you're losing a protein called myoglobin in the urine from the muscle. It can also elevate uh, a metabolite called creatine kinase in the blood. Um, And it can, in really severe circumstances, end up uh, with the patient admitted to hospital because they have such significant muscle breakdown that they're unable to walk. They've got significant pain, fatigue. It can create um, kidney injury uh, as well in the short term, and they need really aggressive uh, IV support to sort of move past that. So what we want to do in two separate groups for the Mercado group, so the glycogen storage disease, their enzyme block is in muscle specifically. So their diet doesn't change day to day. But what happens when they go to exercise, they can't access immediately available glycogen. So when we think about glycogen, that's a stored form of glucose or carbohydrates. So eat carbohydrates, if we don't use it all at the same at the time that we're eating it, it then gets stored in muscle and we can use it for later. So if you guys think about if you're walking around uni, you've got to take the stairs. Okay. So you're climbing up the stairs legs are burning a little bit you've got tiny little bit of lactate because you haven't been outside walking around and around you've walked out the door and walked straight up the stairs they if a lot of our well not a lot but a few of our patients who have this condition called mercadal have ended up in hospital after walking upstairs or having a paper airplane competition or doing a plank uh, on the floor and the reason for that is because Whilst they can access uh, the very, very short-term energy system, the ATPPC, which is that sort of 10-second, 100-meter sprint, they can also access the aerobic system where you think about that's what marathon runners will use. They can't use that in-between system. So your 400-meter run, okay, or your hurdles or um, something that's that really high intensity but more than about 30 seconds. And if they try to use that, then their muscles break down severely. So what we want to do with that cohort, in adults it's been shown that a structured exercise intervention, so thinking about aerobic and strength training three times a week for an hour over a set period of time, that's actually shown to increase their exercise capacity. And for some of these kids, because or some of these patients, not just kids, adults as well, some of them are so deconditioned that they actually don't meet the minimum threshold of what you need from an oxygen uptake point of view to do day-to-day tasks independently. So they struggle to just get groceries to walk to the bus. Um, And their fear of that pain and that negative feedback of that muscle pain then leads to more conditioning. So what we want to do by doing this intervention is hopefully improve their exercise capacity and their muscle strength to then better their ability to go about their normal day-to-day life of activity, but also then participate in structured sports and exercise. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's the hope. It's not actually been done in children yet. Um, so that's where our cohort comes and, and in. And does the the uh, naturally the diet would change as you're increasing the exercise, right, for these children, or is it they maintain the same food and then? But wouldn't they would surely they would need to eat more food because they're they're burning those potentially. But that actually, it's a really good question because this enzyme deficiency is so siloed to the muscle, it doesn't affect their day to day. carbohydrate or uh, dietary intake all of the normal metabolism pathways for utilizing sort of uh, energy for organs to work that's not affected in this particular condition it's just the muscle cells that can't access the stored glycogen it can utilize glucose from blood Mm. so by eating food they can get um, energy it's just that there's a bit of a delay so that that time of delay that's when they run into trouble and this is actually a really interesting condition that has what we call a patho- pathognomonic phenomenon. And so pathognomonic means it's featured just for that particular condition. It's a hallmark of that condition. And what it's called is a second wind. And I don't know if the <laughs> colloquial term of second wind came about before or after this particular condition. But what happens is if we get these patients to, say, exercise on a treadmill or a bike at a standard um a steady state load. So that means we just put them at uh, say 60 or 70% of what we think their max will so that they're in a submaximal zone and they're just doing that consistently for 10, 15 minutes. What you will see is an immediate increase in their heart rate and their perceived exertion, which is normal to an extent. Everyone, when they start exercise, heart rate rises a little bit, you get a little bit tired. These, pa- um, these patients, it increases exponentially and dramatically, um, almost to sort of maximum. And what then happens around average of about seven minutes, but it can range sort of from about five up to about 15, is that that heart rate and that perceived exertion will taper off and then come back down. And then they'll reach a new steady state. And that term is called the second wind. So their exertion comes down and they're kind of ready to go again and they can start exercise. But for a lot of participants or patients, they have never been aware of this until they've been diagnosed. And that's why this particular condition has been misdiagnosed. And the average age for a few cohorts that in the literature has been about 30 or 40 years old because they were just thought to be really lazy kids um, and that they just didn't want to exercise. But it's actually because they've had this significant muscle pain and fatigue and they haven't known that this second wind will kick in. And they'll be able to take a little bit of a break, allow that second wind, and then actually start their exercise. And what age groups will you be looking at? Yeah, great question. We want to do five to twenty-five years old. Oh, so quite a big, quite a big spread. Yeah, and part of that is because the existing four studies on exercise <laughs> interventions in adults um, are for the older age groups, about forty years old, and they've got, I think, about seven to ten participants. We want to do the children, but also the young adults, because there's nothing existing on that at the moment Mm. and also we have a really small cohort so we'd like to get as many numbers as we can and what about the other condition the fatty fatty acid one yeah good question so that's a little bit different we want to look at um so with these particular kids we treat them with a very low fat diet and supplementary what we call mct or medium chain triglycerides so it's processed in a different way Despite that treatment, these kids still end up in hospital with muscle breakdown and rhabdo. Um, So we don't quite know what the best treatment is for them. We want to try and give them different nutrients. Uh, We haven't quite figured out exactly what they are yet. Um, Might be something like ketones. So that's a byproduct of fat metabolism. And because of the fat 
um, metabolism issue they have. They don't typically produce ketones. Maybe ketones, maybe MCT mixed with something, maybe some sort of protein derivative. We would like to give them that in a testing environment, put them on an exercise bike or treadmill and see what parameters may change with those nutrients and if they're able to exercise a bit more effectively. Yeah, so it's more you're because you've got this biochemical pathway and you're sort of skipping the first like steps yep. and cutting like yep. straight through. Yeah, yep. bypassing. Exactly. Yep. Bypassing, so we're kind yep. of how can we reroute so that we can still provide and produce the energy the muscles need to work without exacerbating the pathway that's not working. Mm. And have you have you started this this trial or so you're sort of recruiting patients and and all that? Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to do the exercise macadal first. And then we're going to look at the fatty acid oxidation after that once we have a bit more of a brainstorm and um, sort of think about how and what products we can access. Some of the barriers with that particular protocol will be what nutrients we choose and that will depend on what's available because we can't really just wander down to the local pharmacy <laughs> or the health food store and grab some protein supplements or ketones off the shelf Whilst there are lots available, we don't know what the medical grade is or the integrity or the quality control. We need to be using products that have, you know, sort of gone through the right channels and, you know, TGA approval and that we can guarantee that A, they're accessible, but B, they are what they actually say they are. And same sort of cohort for the fatty acid group or different? I think it'll just be the children yeah. for that. Yeah. So any anything from sort of five or anyone from five to probably 18. Um I don't think we can do lower just because of the ability to be able to get on a bike or a treadmill from a safety perspective and following instructions. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we haven't sort of explored that just yet. I'm, I'm interested to know more about the genetics, if, if you don't mind. Mm, I'll, whatever so, I can help with. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, like, just, I guess, typically, um, these are these typically monogenic diseases? They're autosomal recessive. Autosomal recessive, yeah. okay. So you're inheriting obviously one gene from mum, one gene from dad, and then you've got two genes coming together. Typically, all of us will have some defective genes, but what usually happens is that we have the second copy to take over the control of the defective gene. But what happens with these kids is they've unfortunately inherited two defective genes. Mm. So they have no sort of copy to override that process and they're left with no option really. And so they're um, described to be expressing that particular defect or that enzyme deficiency. There's a one in four chance of that happening uh, with carriers of these genes. There's a one in four chance of uh, no carrier. So the the um, offspring or baby will have two good copies of the gene and then there's a 50% chance that the baby will have one defective gene and therefore also be a carrier. So it's a Mendelian yes. um, inheritance. inheritance. Wow. Yeah. Always, always so surprised when that happens in humans because you always think that surely it's more complex than that but there are it's, many yeah. diseases where that's actually <laughs> yeah. the case. So cystic fibrosis is yeah, one exactly. of the most common ones. So yeah. that's another thing that's tested on the Guthrie card. Right. Again, not the area I specialize in sure. but same sort of idea. Um, most of ours are Mendelian, but we do have some X-linked conditions as well. So yeah. coming in off the female chromosome, um, which means that typically any female with that condition will have a really variable phenotype because they've got two X chromosomes. They could be extremely severe or they could be on the milder spectrum, but then the males typically inheriting only one X chromosome, they're typically extremely severe. 
Uh, are there, on that note, are there any sex differences in um, prevalence of these diseases? It's a really good question. Not to my knowledge for the ones I'm studying. I think it's should be roughly 50-50. I haven't seen anything in the literature that would indicate otherwise. Yeah. Mm. There's certainly, though, um, what's interesting is there are certain gene variants that are way more popular in certain areas. Mm. So there's one particular gene variant in New Zealand um, that's more common in, I think, one of the um, Maori uh, cohorts, and mm. that is a fatty acid oxidation called VLCAD, um, and that's a milder phenotype, but it's very, very high prevalence. Which that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. why, why do you think that is? Does, do you think it's uh, historical diet, dietary habits? Or? I don't know. It's fascinating though. And you see that in a few of these dis- different conditions around the world. There's one variant in Poland, I think, as well that's really common. And then the other thing we tend to see is that there are some uh, communities and cultures that consanguinity or consanguinous marriages are still quite common so where you're I guess marrying within the family and we see that variants gene variants within those communities are then way more prevalent and we see those conditions coming through more often from those communities Um, and you know out at sort of the Children's Hospital Westmead that area is a very multicultural area so we do have families coming through that are consanguineous mm. and that have yeah those higher prevalence variants it's fascinating mm. yeah i guess you're just sort of i'm just thinking that i mean we know this about medicine anyway but I, one would assume that even though these diseases are very rare that there are you know in in countries or or regions where this testing isn't available there must be so many children out there who you know, I guess have have died early in life or are living with this condition and no one knows and what's what's going on. Maybe they're just like a lazy kid or a fussy eater or whatever it may be, but there's this underlying um, cause. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really good point. There are many countries that don't have any newborn screening or they just have a limited number of newborn screening because it's up to the particular country, but also even the states within the country. So I believe that New South Wales, we have different conditions that we test for that, say, may not be tested for in Victoria. And there are some other developed countries, I think off, I think off the top of my head, France, don't have much in the way of newborn screening or they have a, a more limited range of disorders that they screen for. So you're right, you're then going to have children presenting either later in life where they've probably already suffered some level of physical or cognitive impediment or have higher and earlier death rates mm. and not sure why because they haven't had that early treatment. Mm. And I, I had a, a thought, and feel free to just say you don't know the answer, but I thought it was an interesting question. I guess, so you're with these, um, you know, with these patients, with these children, the, I guess the, the main approach for therapy is through diet, right? Through modifying the diet mm-hmm. in these very complex ways. I guess thinking towards the future... You know, we have these mm. new um, sort of uh, genetic technologies mm. coming in. So, you know, CRISPR is obviously a famous one, but even even sort of in a simpler way, like a, these mRNA yep. therapeutics. Have you had much thought about that or is there much conversation about that? Or There is a bit. Again, definitely not my area of expertise, <laughs> um, but there's a big research building out at uh, Westmead and that some of the therapies they're looking at that and obviously overseas as well. Mm. So there's one condition I know that I think they're bringing a trial soon to Australia uh, for something called MMA, which is 
not uh, a martial arts uh, <laughs> type. It's methamalonic aciduria and it's a protein-based disorder, a pretty horrible one. Um, and there's an MRI, uh, mRNA trial associated with that. Oh, cool. Yeah. There are also gene therapies um, for a lot of our different conditions as well. I don't know the progress though. I think it's fairly slow mm. and if still going on animal models than anything. Um, there's also enzyme replacement uh, um, research happening as well. And there's some um, in one or two disorders, I believe, from the dietary perspective, are available in adults or being trialed in adults in Australia, but potentially available in the States already. And then for some of our other conditions, liver transplant can either provide a curative effect or a mitigation effect. Hmm. And part of that is because some of the enzyme deficiencies are located. Um, just in the liver, but some of them, the liver might have about express about 30% of that deficiency and then the enzyme deficiency spread throughout the body. So by replacing the liver, it can um, dampen down the severity, I guess, of the disease, but there are still some ongoing manifestations. But I mean, liver transplant comes with its whole number. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you wouldn't be uh, signing up to that on a whim. You know? that's a, <laughs> no, that's but it's, a, I think it's becoming one. more and more oft, uh, more and more common. Yeah. So we recently had uh, a young four-year-old, I believe, that had a liver transplant. And we also had a teenager who had a combined liver and kidney transplant. Wow. Oh, so they're bit, yeah, very, very big. Um, but yeah, I guess that's the, the way up of pros and cons and where the the disease sort of progression is sitting and where that quality of life and development is sitting. So your project, where are you at <laughs> at the moment? Never as far as I want him to, yes. <laughs> yes. Patience is clearly not a strong point. No, it's not. I think, I think you're aware of that by now. <laughs> so I've just submitted a draft literature review to my supervisors. Um, and when I asked them originally or a few times how big it should be, they just imitated dropping a large stack of papers on the desk. So I've sent 80 pages to them and said, happy reading. <laughs> Um, I have a confirmation review in a few weeks. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Well, would we say it's exciting? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. It's, <laughs> it's exciting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just submitted uh, about a month ago to Ethics for the first protocol, which is that exercise intervention, and got 28 amendments back. So I'm resubmitting that tomorrow. Oh, ethics. Yes, we, we like <laughs> ethics. Um, done some paper writing as well, which has been, I think, really helpful just in terms of practicing that synthesizing of yeah. information. Um, so, yeah, next steps is sort of get the ethics underway, do the site-specific applications, do the confirmation review, um, and sort of tie all of those things ideally together by the end of the year so we can look at recruitment for study one by sort of second quarter, first quarter, second quarter next year. Exciting. So, early days, but lots uh, lots. That's done. Sounds um, very productive. Yeah, super productive. Well, look, I'm just <laughs> grateful not to sit there and read thousands of journal articles over and over and feel like I'm not making any progress. <laughs> so if we take you way back in your journey relative mm. to now, what is a piece of advice you would give young Kira mm. now? Oh, that's a challenging one. Um, I think I've learned over time to balance the say yes and say no. Uh, I think, you know, early in your career, you want to say yes and be open to opportunities and learning and sort of think about, well, where do I want to go? And you might, you might not know that. So you need to kind of try a few things and, okay, well, I didn't 
enjoy that or I really liked that, might be open to that. And then you get to a point where, oh, I'm really overloaded and I can't do all the things and I need to sort of focus my energies on one or another. But then you need to kind of come full circle and think about, okay, well, what's your best bang for your buck? Who do I need to trust in this process? Who do I need to say yes to? And that's how this whole thing came about for me. You know, Christoph, my supervisor, who, as I said, is my hospital doctor, when he walked in um, just before we started this whole philanthropic pitch project, walked into my office one day, said, oh, I'm meeting with the hospital foundation people in five minutes. Do you want to come? No context, no background, nothing. There was nothing to do with a PhD at this point. We don't even didn't even know about philanthropists, didn't even know about the mentoring program. He just said, do you want to come? And I'd learned by that stage to trust him in whatever grand scheme, big idea, blue sky thinking uh, ideal he had going on. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'll walk into this room. And that's where we got on board with the project pitch. And then that led to philanthropy philanthropy, and here we are, PhD. So it's a very roundabout answer to your question. I don't know if it really... Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really good advice. Don't say yes too much, but when you know it's really good for the future, say yes. Yeah. Somehow know what's good for the future and say yes. Trust your gut. Yeah, trust your gut and trust those people who you know have your best interests as Mm. well and Mm. they they back you and they want to support you. Um, And I think that that goes for, you know, your supervisors as well. I think... One of the things I've learned in this process is it's not just about ticking the PhD box. You know, initially I was so focused on, and MTIs will know this, I can't take breaks. I can't, you know, do other things. I just want to get my PhD done. I don't want to do, you know, these extra group facilitation or I don't want to spend too much time on this paper. I'm getting frustrated at how long it's taking, but I realize that it's not about that. It's not about getting those letters at the end of your name and finishing it off and moving on to the next thing. It's learning the research skills, learning the networking skills, the presentation skills, all the other things that come with research that you don't even know you don't know because you've never been exposed to it and no one's ever told you this is the list of things you need to do. (laughs) So I think that's probably the other thing I'd be mindful of is um, it's okay just to go with that process and sit with bit of discomfort for a little while and yeah go with your gut go with the flow um and say yes to a few more things than you might ordinarily have thought you should ah young grasshopper (laughs) 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 there's lots of nuggets of information there for you guys so master went to say yes it's okay to say no be comfortable in the discomfort and it's not the phd is not the end goal really it's everything that you're gonna it's the journey Right. Yeah, and it's journey. not going to be the perfect it's the friends journey. you make along the way. Yeah, yeah. that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Kira. We look forward to your progress and chatting to you again towards the end of it. All of the best with the PhD to our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Um, remember, you can find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Lachlan, too. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me today, guys, and thanks for the great podcast. You're welcome. See you next time. Bye. Bye.